Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. Today we're going to talk about one element of the mental health experience, namely a comprehensive clinical assessment that includes standardized psychological testing. When an individual begins mental health treatment, any competent clinician, regardless of discipline, will conduct a comprehensive assessment of the client at the outset. This assessment generally includes a detailed interview of the client and perhaps other interested parties such as parents and teachers. It will include what is said in the interviews, as well as data that the clinician observes. Observational data can include, for example, whether the client makes eye contact, their affect or emotional expression, if they seem agitated or depressed, whether they're cleanly and appropriately dressed. There might be informal questionnaires, school or medical records, and perhaps a referral for a medical examination. These assessments are essential to understanding what is troubling a client, what might be an appropriate mental health diagnosis, and how treatment should be structured to be most useful. According to the American Psychological Association, or APA, standardized psychological testing is related to but separate from the clinical assessment. It may be administered as part of a clinical assessment, particularly when there is some question about appropriate diagnosis. Psychological testing may also be used to test an individual's suitability for a job or to predict future academic abilities. Specifically, psychological testing involves the use of formal tests, often described as norm-referenced. The APA writes that norm-referenced means that the tests have been standardized so that test takers are evaluated in the same way, no matter where they live or who administers the test. Norm reference tests have been developed and evaluated by researchers and proven to be effective for measuring a particular trait or disorder. While sometimes an essential tool to clearly understand and then effectively treat a client, formal psychological testing is not routine in most mental health treatment. Unlike a clinical assessment, these tests can only be administered by psychologists. Their administration would be considered out of the scope of practice for other mental health disciplines. As a licensed clinical social worker, for example, I cannot ethically administer psychological testing, although I can make that referral to someone who can. It is reasonable to think that a recommendation for psychological testing might create some anxiety for most of us. 
The word test is certainly uncomfortable and implies a right or wrong answer. There might be a fear of, oh no, what are they going to reveal about me? At the same time, these tests are something we are all subject to throughout our lives, even outside of mental health treatment, in school, when applying for jobs, to get into college. It begs the question, are these tests truly accurate in identifying an individual's characteristics and abilities? Do they really work? Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dawn Vojutaba, Chief Clinical Officer of the Guidance Center. Dawn earned her doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis in children and families from Clark University in 2005. Since then, she's dedicated herself to working with underserved children and families in community mental health. In addition to her very large role as chief clinical officer, Dawn has also held multiple leadership positions in her field. These include positions on the Southern California Association of Psychology Training Programs, the Association of Psychology Postdoctoral and Internship Programs, and the American Psychological Association Commission on Accreditation. So welcome, Dawn. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners, our paths have crossed through our careers. I've known Dawn since she was an intern. And for the last several years, I've had the great fortune of working with her directly in our roles at the Guidance Center. Um, but Dawn, for the benefit of our listeners, would you say a few words about yourself, please? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm excited to be here to be able to represent licensed clinical psychologists and talk about one of the areas that really distinguishes clinical psychologists and neuropsychologists from other mental health disciplines. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. So let's just uh, jump right in and address that ink blot in the corner. Um, I think when most people think about psych testing, all they really know of is the Rorschach ink blot test. And I'm going to venture a guess that the idea that an ink block test developed in 1921 can convey something meaningful about a person is met with skepticism by many. So could you please help us understand how these tests are valid and whether their findings can really be trusted? I understand the doubt, um, especially because psychological testing is often used in really high stakes situations like in court, right? Um, and I'm sure everyone listening has probably seen on Law & Order, the ink blot that's been rolled out in, in that scene where the detective's trying to figure out if the person is crazy or quote unquote crazy, right? So I definitely understand the skepticism. How is that supposed to tell you who I am? Um, so I won't get into the the Rorschach in detail because the test itself is often disputed in different psychology circles, just like the difference between psychoanalysis, you know, lying on the couch versus a very behavioral way to, to treat people. But let me focus on your question about validity and how we can trust it, right? Um, let's focus on how tests are created and what makes them actually valid and reliable. I won't get into kind of the details, unless you want me to, about all the different types of validity. But when we choose tests to administer, we want to make sure that it is a test that's gone through really rigorous research process to determine that it's valid, or in other words, it's um, measuring what it claims to measure, right? So an example is if you step on your scale 
to measure your weight, you want to make sure it's not actually somehow measuring your shoe size. (laughs) So a lot of research is done to make sure that as best as we can, um, because human behavior is not an exact science, um, but as best as we can, a lot of the research is done to make sure that these tests are measuring what they're purporting to measure, right? So it's the weight of the research behind them that should give us some comfort. Yes, absolutely. The okay. weight of it, the the individuals who are included in the research, um, all of that together should hopefully give you more confidence. So there are so many different sorts of testing tools. Can you start perhaps by explaining the difference between a projective and an objective test? And when or why would you use one or the other? Yeah. So, well, let me start with the first one is that you wouldn't ever use one or the other. Um, We usually provide a battery of tests and oftentimes you want to actually use both. And here's the reason. An objective test, right, requires that everybody is responding to a really structured set of instructions and they're getting all the same questions. Um, A projective test is given in an ambiguous context. You aren't quite sure exactly what the test is trying to measure so that it gives the person who's responding to it an opportunity to impose their own interpretation on how it should be answered or what they're going through, right? So in the sense, some people think of projective as figuring out your unconscious and things that you might not be aware of coming out on the test, right? Whereas objective is you can answer true, false, yes or no. Um, But thanks to more recent research with the Rorschach, um, we also consider behavioral in developmental tests as well. So it's not projective in the sense that somebody is imposing their deep-seated unconscious feelings and thoughts. Um, but the way that someone responds to something that's ambiguous, like an inkblot, um, and the way we make sense of it is interpreted. And as, as a replica or just a, a sample of how they would actually respond to ambiguous things in their real life. Um, so I'm just kind of thinking, you know, an example is um, that we have one test that might be viewed in some circles as being projective or unscientific because a child has to tell a story um, based on a picture that they see with two people. There's nothing else in the picture, just the people usually. And they, you know, have to quote unquote project what might be happening in their own life um, onto the card. So we don't see it as there's some unconscious thing that happened to them. And then they somehow the card is making it, bringing that out in them. But typically you know, like the old saying, if someone shows you who they are, believe them. Right. <laughs> so the way, the way someone responds to um, an ambiguous thing, like a picture or an ink blot, is how they can, how we can kind of assess how they really are in the world versus them just saying true or false, right? We're seeing a snippet of their actual behavior. Gotcha. Can you, but that interpretation, I'm assuming for, that they're, because if we're talking about interpretation, that could in theory be subject to bias um, by the interpreter. So 
could you talk about sort of the guidelines or the directions is the wrong word, but the guidelines around how to interpret what you see as a tester? Yeah, so there's, I, I can't get into kind of the, the details of it, but I guess hopefully suffice it to say there are very strict criteria about what you would score as um, aggression or what you might score as not having appropriate resources in your life, right? So those are the different things um, that we might score. And it's developmental in the sense that we know at certain ages, you know, children are able to do more or less in terms of problem solving, um, interacting interpersonally. They have more advanced skills when they're older, maybe less advanced skills when they're younger, right? And so based on what is expected at someone's developmental level, we would score based on that. And their examples, um, and kind of to get back to your earlier question about trusting it, these tests go through inter-rater reliability before they're put out for the public, right? So multiple experts, people are rating and only if there can be consistency among raters, consistency over time, even if the person has re-administered the test again, that they're getting a similar score, um, that's when a test is put out. So we have some confidence that the scoring is accurate. That's not to say there isn't bias and we can definitely certainly talk about that. But I mean, that that's interesting. I had asked earlier about the validity. Are they really measuring what they're measuring? And what you're saying is there is validity, validity, but there's also reliability. It's they have clearly tested to make sure that across raters, the same findings are. Yeah, right. You have to have both to be a test that's going to be put out there for public consumption. So. Yeah, that's reassuring, certainly. <laughs> you know, my clinical area of expertise has always been trauma treatment and that those can sometimes uh, be complicated from a diagnostic perspective. Um, and I might refer a client for testing to help me understand whether the things I'm seeing are from trauma, anxiety, depression, ADHD. Um, they all can have somewhat similar presentation. Um, so explain in a case like this or others, what what is a differential diagnosis in mental health treatment and how testing might aid in that? Well, as you are quite aware, our diagnostic manual that was created by the American Psychiatric Association um, and is used in our healthcare system to justify services in, the, in a few different situations has overlapping criteria, right? So for example, both trauma and depression have this criteria that you have to have markedly diminished interest in something that you might have previously enjoyed. Um, so how do you tell if somebody has that symptom that it's trauma or depression? That's what we mean by differential diagnosis. You have a similar symptom. How do we tease apart what it actually is? So similarly, if you go to a physician and you have weight loss and fatigue, they have to decide, you know, maybe is this diabetes or is it hyperthyroidism? Or depression. Um, we use the test to, or <laughs> right. depression, exactly. Right. So we use testing to do the exact same thing. How, so testing helps you then flush it out? Well, testing can be helpful because sometimes an individual is not very forthcoming to their therapist about the symptoms that they are having, right? And we've actually found that sometimes it's easier for them to respond on paper with nobody watching them to a yes, no question. Do you feel suicide? 
suicidal or do you feel depressed? Do you hear voices? Sometimes they're actually much more likely to respond honestly there. Um, but I'll also say just other times the distinction is so minute that you can't really tell just by observation. Um, so for example, distinguishing between autism and social anxiety or distinguishing between a flashback from trauma or a hallucination. Um, so testing is also one of the ways that we can detect malingering or somebody who might be pretending um, to have a particular symptom. I'm so glad you said that about uh, flashbacks sometimes looking like possible hallucinations or psychosis. Um, mm -hmm. That's been my mantra for so long that we have to I really carefully distinguish that. And I have definitely seen where referrals to testing have been just invaluable in that process. So I'm really glad that you said that. Should we be doing more of this in mental health? We don't very often. Um, and a lot of our funders don't pay it, insurance or um, so should we be doing more testing in mental health? Well, I would say yes, because I'm so passionate <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, and here's the reason why, though, right, is, because, you know, I think that sometimes if we know in advance and can be more precise in what our treatment and what our intervention is going to be, it might not take then three to five years to help somebody recover from their illness. So um, I'm a proponent of it. It doesn't mean that we have to put a young child through 10 hours of testing or anything. But I think if we can get a little bit more precise in our diagnosis, um, then that will definitely move treatment along and benefit our youth in the right. long run. Greater success and perhaps a shorter period of time. Right. What are the other purposes of psychological testing? Here's an example. I was last week sitting on a, a panel interviewing potential candidates for the Long Beach Police Academy. And I learned there, I was pleased to learn there that all the candidates are subject to a battery of psych testing um, as part of their application. Um, so jobs, what other purpose? I think it happens more in our regular lives than people realize they haven't necessarily called it psych testing. So what are the other purposes? Well, Neuropsychologists will often use them to determine a course of rehabilitation, cognitive rehabilitation, maybe after a traumatic brain injury, right? What are the deficits that someone has endured because of their brain injury and how can we help them regain some of their thinking and problem solving abilities? Um, in schools, it's used a lot for determining whether a child has learning disabilities and might qualify for an individualized education plan. Um, there's a, and sometimes it's just used to help people learn about themselves. Um, one way that we use testing here at the Guidance Center is through a therapeutic or collaborative assessment approach, um, which is really using the test to help move along somebody's exploration and insight into their problems. So maybe instead of sending, spending 10 years on a couch in psychoanalysis, testing, testing can be used to help them along a little faster to discover things about themselves. Um, it's a very client-centered approach and, you know, we use feedback and ask questions mm -hmm. to really uh, more accurately interpret their, their black and white score. Can you 
possibly present a case of a time when psychological testing was instrumental in aiding in the treatment? I can. I've got so many because, <laughs> you know, it's been really exciting. But one that comes to mind is a case that I had a long time ago. Um, it was a client who was about 13. She had been in therapy with some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists for three years um, because of selective mutism, which is um, when a child or an individual will speak in certain situations, but doesn't speak at all in other situations. Um, so she wouldn't talk at school. She wouldn't talk in therapy. So for three years, they were working with her, wouldn't talk at all that's in therapy. I don't know why she was still in therapy for three yes. years, but that's a different, that's a different question. Um, you know, all of her providers, to their credit, used what was the gold standard in the field for treating selective mutism, right? Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, reinforcement for her getting any verbalizations out or any nonverbal communication, um, exposing her to different situations to try to reduce her anxiety, but nothing worked. So she was finally referred to me for testing. And can you imagine I'm handed this case where they're saying, guess what? She won't talk. <laughs> Test her, Test please. Her. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get some answers from her. Um, and so honestly, at, in the moment, I was just using my clinical judgment and gut instinct. And fortunately we had several tests that don't require um, verbalizations in order to assess the person's intel intelligence or their cognitive abilities, right? They were worried that maybe she wasn't talking because there was something wrong with her thinking and her intelligence. Um, but it was interesting throughout that process of not forcing her to talk not having that be the goal um, and ha having these tests that allowed her to express herself, demonstrate herself was actually what ended up getting her to talk to me. And almost oh, she wow. had to, she would accidentally talk at times um, and express and laugh and she had to cover her mouth up and say, oh, oh no, I, I spoke. <laughs> um, but it was just using the testing in a way that was both standardized um, but not standardized as well to reduce her anxiety about hearing herself. That's interesting. The testing became an intervention, not right. just yeah. information. It actually was yeah. an intervention yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. And that's the approach we take here at the guidance center that you have to see testing as the therapeutic intervention too. It isn't just data collection. I will own my bias um, as a non-psychologist. I, I love psych testing and I think reading those reports after is, is just fascinating and you learn so much. So um, I'll confess that you have a, a fan in that regard here. Um, but for, let's say someone is being referred or their child is being referred for testing, um, what should they expect from the process? You've hit on that a little bit of how we do it, but what should they expect? Yeah, it, it can be a long process. So typically it requires six to eight hours, um, depending on the child. Some children can sit for an entire day of testing. Um, some, it might have to be spread across one to three days. Um, so I would just encourage those who have been referred for testing or might be interested in finding out more about themselves as first to start with being curious it could probably feel like you're going in to this expert who is supposed to tell you all about yourself. But in fact, we can't tell you about yourself unless we have your help. So 
ask questions of your assessor about what the test is for um, so that they can also help you understand what they can find out about you. And therefore you can have questions to ask them about yourself too. So there will be a lot of jargon. Psychologists like, like the fancy words and to put labels on everything. So make sure to ask the, the, the psychologist to explain it to you. Don't just nod your head and accept what they are saying to you. And then always make sure that you get a copy of the report and come back and read it and ask questions. So be involved in the process. Absolutely. Dr. Stephen Roberts of Stanford University School of Humanities and Sciences found in 2020 that psychological research has an inherent racial bias. His research found that psychological publications that highlight race are rare. And when race is discussed, it is authored mostly and edited almost entirely by white scholars. Further, he and his team found that researchers very often do not publish the race or ethnicity of the research subjects, leaving open the question of whether the findings are generalizable across groups. This raises the question of whether psychological testing is neutral across race, culture, gender, and socioeconomic groups. Dr. Frederick Leong and Yang Su Park write, historically speaking, Psychological testing and assessment with racial ethnic minority groups have been fraught with controversy. Early perspectives erroneously assumed that psychological tests and assessments were objective, culture-free, and generalizable to racial ethnic minorities, even though the majority of tests were standardized, validated, and found to be reliable with primarily white, middle-class, English-language samples. Dr. Sue Arredondo and Nick Davis found that early researchers hypothesized that minorities score lower than whites because they are genetically and biologically deficient, rather than because the measures were inherently biased to race and ethnicity. Dawn, against this backdrop and understanding that psychological research still has a white majority bias, can we be confident that minority clients are being fairly evaluated? And the examples that come up are ones that had impact on the outcomes of people's sort of lives or life paths, but the IQ test and the SAT test are both examples of well-recognized established tools that have been found to have some cultural, racial, and socioeconomic bias. So can we be confident that minority clients are fairly evaluated using these tools? Well, I will say, let's first start with the premise that it's a requirement that we have to be neutral somehow in, the tests have to be neutral, that the assessor has to be neutral, because I think that's a fallacy that really has endured, um, you know, over time. Psychotherapy was developed as the white man's endeavor and early theories of psychotherapy, right, assumed that the therapist had to be this tabla rasa or the blank slate for the client. And so unfortunately, I think it isn't whether the the test is biased or not. Um, We know that 
it will be. Um, we know that there are that there's no perfect test because we're human beings, right? No matter what we do, um, there will be some bias in the test development. There will be some beliefs that an assessor might have that will come out in nonverbal behavior. And so instead of trying to achieve this neutrality, um, leaning in to understand that there is going to be a certain level of bias and there isn't perfect validity and there isn't perfect reliability and interpreting the tests based on that understanding, right? Based on the understanding that the way that I look or the way that I act around you might change how you respond to the test questions and making sense of that when we finally come to a diagnosis or a particular set of recommendations. So that's kind of the approach that I take is, you know, trying not to find and develop this perfect test that is unbiased. But sort of understanding that that, that is there as you're evaluating the results. Exactly. That, gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Right. You know, I think about a client that I had a long time ago, actually the father of a client I had a long time ago. This family was from Ghana, um, immigrated here when the my client, a young girl, was a child. She was in kindergarten or so when they moved to the United States. I got her as a teenager because, um, well, her presenting issue was hallucinations, developing psychosis. And the father's understanding of her psychosis was that two generations earlier, her great-grandfather was cursed by a neighbor and that the curse put, put the curse on the family and that it took these two generations to manifest in her. And so her psychosis was actually that she was possessed um, by the devil or spirits as a result of that curse from two generations earlier. If I didn't understand him from a cultural perspective and where he came from, I might've thought he was psychotic if I were rigid in understanding those behaviors. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine him being in a, like the situation of psych testing and like how, People are so different. Is that how the bias occurs in these standardized tools or what, what's the basis or the background for how bias, they're supposed to be standardized. How is their bias? Well, going back to how it's developed, right? There can be bias because the sample that was used to set up the normative data. So when it's standardized, it means you can compare someone to a, a group similar to them. And of course, it's not the entire US population. It may be a subset of individuals in the Midwest who were part of the research sample, right? And so it can be biased in that way is that the, the numbers don't represent the person that you are testing because they weren't part of the initial um, research sample. So it can be biased in, in that way, that their score might look higher or lower um, because they're being compared to somebody who isn't like them. Um, it can be biased in that there is 
um, the, the assessor bias, right? The way in which you interact with the person. We try as best as possible to not um, uh, influence the other person and how they're going to respond, but it could just be as simple as um, someone, you know, nonverbal behavior. I'm not expecting you to know this answer. So I'm going to move quickly along. Um, mm -hmm. I have that bias about you, right? I'm not giving you that extra second to maybe answer the question. So those subtle biases can certainly still um, come out during test development, but also um, during the actual testing. But we also know, right, some, especially this is, this is particularly in the case of intelligence tests where like we've seen with the SATs that your score on it isn't necessarily reflective of how smart you are, um, but it may be reflective of the environment in which you grew up in, right? That you aren't exposed to some of the um, questions that are, or the tasks that are asked of you because you've never had a television and not able to watch Sesame Street and learn, you know, this is what shapes are and those kinds of things. So there is inherent bias in some of the tests because of that. And we've worked um, pretty hard more in, in the last three decades, I think, to advance um, some of those biases that have occurred because of educational or socioeconomic inequalities. Are we doing better about um, norming them across multiple groups? So it's not so much that, oh, this was normed on exclusively white middle-class kids. Are we doing better about sort of our norming populations? We yeah. <laughs> yes, we're definitely doing better. And there are actually intelligence tests out there that are specifically conducted only in Spanish. Um, so we don't have it yet for all of the languages that are used in the U.S., but definitely we're making um, inroads in advancing uh, the diversity in the tests that are available and the samples that are used. I think this is going to be a softball question because I think I mm -hmm. you've kind of hit on it already, but community mental health, I mean, we know this, we tend to predominantly serve people of color. They're more likely to be marginalized and lower income mm -hmm. because of their minority status. Given this, please explain your confidence in using these tools for our population. Well, I think it's again, you know, the confidence, not just in the test, but in the assessor and how they use it and how they um, choose which tests are appropriate for a particular client. So, right, we, we have um, a lot of tests that are meant for a much more diverse population. And we take really great care as best as possible to make sure that all of the issues um, that we've talked about in terms of bias um, are taken into consideration when we make the final interpretations. So I have confidence because we never make any decision just based on one score on one test. It usually has to be the bigger picture, right? We integrate the person's history, their educational experience and their exposure, um, the stimulation in their environment. Um, we take all of that into consideration when we look at a score and say, this is an accurate representation of them or not. So it's the comprehensiveness and the of it that really also gives you confidence as well. 
Right. It's we take into consideration context, right? right. We aren't testing in a vacuum and, and remembering that is really essential. And that's what gives me confidence. So Don, I, I always end these conversations on a note of hope. Um, you know, I'm eternally optimistic. Um, <laughs> you've been committed to community mental health your whole career. You know, it's a really hard population. One of my absolute favorite things about working with you is that you are so dedicated to um, not just providing the treatment, but really enhancing clinical standards and absolutely believing that our clients deserve the best possible treatment out there. And, but it's a lot of work. Um, what you take on, uh, what gives you the hope to continue doing this? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is that we've made so many strides in the fear, the area of psychological testing and, um, you know, I've, it, the tests are developed with the best intentions. And as we have a more diverse workforce and the researchers out there um, start to look like myself and other persons of color, um, the tests will reflect more accurately the U.S. population as a whole. So I'm, I'm hopeful. There's even a test now, the Rorschach, as we mentioned earlier, right? There's international data collection occurring right now for a new system. Um, and I just have hope because I've sat in the room across from the kids and the families and to, to see and witness that feeling of finally being seen by somebody, um, finally feeling understood after they get their testing results. That's what keeps me uplifted and, and keeps me um, hopeful that this is still an important endeavor for us to continue you know, psychological testing is the closest we have to laboratory testing um, in our field to, to come to a diagnosis. And so I've seen our families walk away with a better understanding of why they've had struggles and that it isn't their fault. Um, and we actually give them a set of recommendations that are specific to them. Um, so that's what that's what gives me hope. And that's what keeps me teaching psychological testing here at the Guidance Center. I can see where that would be a huge relief on the client side to, oh, I get it now. Um, I hadn't really thought about it that way um, to finally get themselves that full understanding. Um, yeah. And thank you, Don, for joining us today. I think this was a important conversation about an element of mental health that I know you love that is perhaps mysterious and scary to some. So I thank you for enlightening us otherwise. And thank you also for just the incredible work that you do every day. Thank you again for having me. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation 
or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.